The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. On leaving the synagogue, Jesus entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law lay sick with a fever. They immediately told him about her. He approached, grasped her hand, and helped her up. Then the fever left her, and she waited on them. When it was evening after sunset, they brought to him all who were ill or possessed by demons. The whole town was gathered at the door. He cured many who were sick with various diseases. They drove out many demons, not permitting them to speak because they knew him. Rising very early before dawn, he left and went off to a deserted place where he prayed. Simon and those who were with him pursued him, and on finding him said, Everyone is looking for you. He told them, Let us go on to the nearby villages, that I may preach there also. For this purpose have I come. So he went into their synagogues, preaching and driving out demons throughout the whole of Galilee. The Gospel of the Lord. From time to time, in the hospital or in the nursing home, you will come across someone who doesn't want to be healed. They really don't care. They just as soon remain ill, or even die for that matter. Sometimes it's because of age. That's not so unnatural. Someone of greatly advanced years thinks it's time to go home to God. And sometimes it's just depression or even despair. But that's not true with most of us, is it? Most of us want to be healed, at least physically. But the greatest pains that we have are not physical. They're spiritual. And from these, we're a little more hesitant. Because we can't be healed unless we wish to be healed. Unless we're open to it. Our Lord heals so often in the gospel, but his greatest healing is always a spiritual healing. And our world needs that. In fact, every one of us here over the age of reason is in constant need of God's healing particularly through the Eucharist and the sacrament of penance. We are always in need of God's healing. And so God comes to us and wants to heal us, but we have to be open to it, willing to accept it. And you know, that's true with our culture. I suppose in one of the ways I've seen that most vividly and painfully is in the matter of abortion. We hear about that a lot here, but although I've never preached on an entire homily on it, but I see one of the greatest pains of all there. You know, there is no question, even among doctors, sometimes even amongst abortionists, 
that this is a unique human life. The moment of conception is not part of the body of the mother. In it, yes. Dependent upon it, yes. But with its own chromosomal structure, its own uniqueness. And it will always, unless nature in some way obstructs it, become a human being. Probably it already is a human being. It's being born a human being as we are. It is, all, it is already a human being. But it will always come out of the womb as a human, not as a horse or a dog or a cat. It's always human. And yet our society can, over, can reject that and destroy it. Even admitting sometimes that it's a child. What we can't see, we, we often ignore. We don't want to deal with it. Push it into the background. You begin to yawn almost as though, well, it's part of the culture, it's the law, what's the big deal? But if a culture begins to think that way, the culture is doomed. There is respect for no one. For no one. We cannot respect the most innocent and even invisible to us for the moment then we cannot respect anyone. And I believe it's part of the... It is in some ways mostly responsible for the great violence that we see in our culture. Everywhere. Mass violence. I think it begins there. With that little life. The church is so appalled by this that it's one of the few public actions that she punishes with excommunication if someone is aware of the, the, the fact that she does it. Before one can be excommunicated, you have to know that you will be. That's serious business. And not only the person who has it, who is often confused, not only the person who performs it, but anyone who assists in it, in fact, anyone who gives moral support or encourages it is also excommunicated. But remember, the church doesn't excommunicate people because she wants them out there in the darkness, separated from her and from the sacraments. She does it as a cannon shot to wake them up. It's the last thing she can do by way of trying to wake us up to something being so terrible. But then what does the person do? The child is dead, but the people involved in it suffer sometimes more than they ever realize, and far more than we realize, and very often hate to admit it because they think there's no hope. It's been said, I'm going to read this, this is from a feminist, no less, that no woman wants an abortion as she wants an ice cream cone or a Porsche. She wants an abortion as an animal caught in a trap wants to gnaw its off its own leg. And the statement most often heard in those places, in the abortion clinics, is, I don't want to do this, but I have no other choice. Studies now show that 70% of women choosing abortion believe it is morally wrong. Imagine. Reminds me of the Irish. Somebody recently told me that 
one-third of all Irish atheists believe in the divinity of Christ. Figure that out. Well, that's the Irish. In this case, though, you forgive my, you happen to be Irish that I said that, but this case, 70% of them believe that it's morally wrong. 70%. But they feel that there's no other choice. What? Why did they do it? Lack of support. Abortion counselors who make women feel guilty about not having an abortion, imagine. You're going to populate the world, the child won't be wanted, it won't have a good quality of life, which means my quality. Could be a criminal. And a culture that promotes myth. The myth of abortion as a healthy choice. For whom? For no one. So it's a, it's, a, it's a trauma. We have to realize that, if we're going to help change that. It's a trauma for the women who are involved in it. And there are so many of them out there. I think many of them are afraid to mention it, which is one of the reasons I'm giving this homily. It may not affect 90% of us, 99% of us maybe. But we have to be aware of it. It's at our doorstep all the time. We're surrounded by it. We probably walk by it any number of times in the course of a day and don't even know it. Someone who's experiencing the pain of such a thing. I remember one psychiatrist and obstetrician I read said that every woman has a trauma at destroying a pregnancy. This is a part of her own life. When she destroys a pregnancy, she is destroying herself. And what are the effects of it? Listen to the effects. Some of us suffer from these things periodically in life. Most of us do. But listen to the effects of this that we don't often think about. It's not a, it's not a feeling of relief, as they would like to make, make you think that it is. This is out of my life. It's out of my mind. I can now go on with life as usual. I remember hearing Father Joe McNamara, may God rest him, tell the story of a young woman who came into his office one day. and He knew as soon as he saw her that she'd had an abortion. And she told him that her boyfriend wanted nothing to do with it. But when she asked him to accompany her when she had this done, she said he would as long as she bought him dinner afterward. That's being used. If you ever run a definition of being used, that's it. Here are the, the emotional effects. Self-condemnation, shame, despair, sense of being alone in a way far greater than most of us can ever imagine, although most of us have that from time to time. Addictive behaviors. There's difficulty forming relationships after that. Suicidal tendencies. Difficult bonding with children, if she has them, or overprotectiveness. Flashbacks. Anniversary reactions. Depression. Unresolved grief. A million five hundred thousand a year. As I said, it's around us all the time, and every family is in some way touched by it, or knows somebody's touched by it. It doesn't know how to deal with it. The spiritual consequences are even worse when you think of how people have tried to rationalize it and deny it. That's the worst of it all. But everything's fine. If I can admit that I am miserable because I've done something fine, if I can admit that I'm guilty of something fine, then there's great hope for me. But when I try to rationalize it and deny it, well, 
You know how that is. And I, I think the primary form that that takes is a rage. There are others, I'm sure, too. But I've never seen, there are angry people all over the world. And you and I have, probably have some anger that some psychiatrist is going to tell us we shouldn't have, even though he's angry too. We probably all do. In some way, for some reason, who knows why, but we do. But I've never seen a rage like I have seen in people who are part of that industry, or most importantly, had abortions or been part of them and didn't want to admit that there was something wrong. There's an anger that is just incredible. And that's pain. Our job is to invite healing. And nobody can do it as the church can do it. I suspect there are a few people, ordinarily, who appreciate the sacrament of reconciliation and the absolution that we receive there more than somebody like this. They know what it means to carry a burden. And it's not just them. The men who are part of it do, too. They experience the guilt. They can't walk away from it either. It may have been a little less intimate for them, but it was part of their lives. They need healing. This is that they appreciate that sacrament. And so very often we don't because our sins to us seem so small until we sit in front of a crucifix, of course. Then we realize otherwise. And it's the job of the church to offer that healing. And she wants to. She is not going to deny the horror of it. But she's also going to say that there is nothing so horrible that the church will not welcome you back and help you in the process of healing. Because healing doesn't come overnight, does it? Is it? Well, now you're forgiven. You don't need anything else. Yes, we all need healing. That's what penance is all about, you know. Penance is part of the healing process. That's what purgatory is all about. The healing that needs to be done. If we're open to the healing. But it begins there with a great release. And I see it so often in, in the people involved in this. When they realize the horror. And you really can't escape from it. It's always going to be there in some form or another until it's dealt with. Because there was a human being there, and the human being isn't there here any longer. It has gone into the mercy of God. So, only God can turn a tragedy into a triumph. And Christ can use even our sinfulness to bring us back to him. I've seen that happen, haven't you? Somebody does something terrible, and it somehow brings them back to God, because God won't let them stay away. He wants them back. And they desperately want to be healed. We can hide our little things, can't we? Our little scars and pains. But we think we can. So, it's difficult to face a sinful past with courage and humility, isn't it? But it takes, though, courage and humility. Those two such difficult things. Without which there is no chance for growth or holiness or virtue. Courage and humility. It's difficult to forgive ourselves sometimes, although we do it pretty quickly, most of us, within a space of a, within a heartbeat. But not so much with this, no. It's often difficult for them to forgive themselves. It's one thing to say, God forgives you, but then I've got to forgive. I've got to forgive. There's a whole world running around outside that doesn't know how to do that. Doesn't know what to do with its guilt. Funny, too, you know, 
Bishop Sheen once remarked, he said, it's in scripture, that before we sin, the devil is our defender. Oh, don't worry about that. It's not a big deal. God won't be angry with you. And our Lord is the accuser. Don't do it. But after we sin, then the devil becomes the accuser. You see what you've done? There's no hope. You might as well just give up and despair. And our Lord is saying, no. No. I'm standing here with open arms waiting to take you back. All you have to do is take that step. That's true with us, particularly for those who experience the alienation and the pain of an abortion. Nothing quite like it. So, not easy to overcome that. But with prayer and the help of other people, it can be done always. You know, we're having this retreat called Rachel's Vineyard Retreat, February 25th to 27th, just for people who are trying to do this, to welcome them back, to begin their healing journey. Begin. It takes time. We're supposed to create a climate for healing. We pray for those who are struggling with guilt and grief to be reconciled to Christ, including the people who are performing them. Those poor people. I think somebody told me they, they went to actually talk to one of the abortion doctors who said there was great money in it. He didn't like it. He thought he was probably committing murder, but it put his children through college. Such a schizophrenic world we live in. And we have the greatest healing power of all. Confession and the Eucharist. Nothing can heal the way that can heal. And that's true for all of us. But for these people in particular, as I said, it's not out there in the middle of nowhere. It's here. And all of us touch it. Even without knowing. We must pray for God's healing power in their lives, as we need it in our own. When we come to the Eucharist, we need to realize how much God has done for us. We aren't coming as sterling people who have always been wonderful. We are coming as people who need his healing. No, no, that if we come here with the proper intention, with an openness to it, that we will have to experience it. Because God cannot not give it.